These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Window with your friends, Greg and Toby. To all of you, it will have only been like maybe a couple of weeks since you heard us discuss various chapters of Steamheart. But for us, as recently referenced in an editorial insert, it's been five months since we've talked about that. Oh, my God. (laughs) So therefore, I get to begin this episode by saying... Steamheart, back again. Check it, direct it, and let's begin. Specifically, let's begin where we ended our Panther Soul Behind the White Scarves with Hrau. Finally, we get to see what happened with Hrau after her big cliffside death scene, leading up to her big reveal at the end of the chapter titled Salvation. Surprise! We lied to you. She's fine. (laughs) Yes, well... We didn't lie, we just (laughs) pretended like what the story gave us was the truth, because, you know, we do these a little bit at a time. You can dress it up however you like, Greg. I'm owning the fact I lied to you, and I'll do it again if I please, dear listener. Look, we're discussing fiction, and fiction is full of lies, so can you trust us, unreliable narrators, the same as Alex himself? I don't know I'm why. Going I'm cross-eyed. <laughs> all, all, all of a sudden, my voice suddenly went into that, you know, the Batman 60s show. Are our eyes deceiving us? Batman quilted to a mattress? Robin led away by the abominable Sandman to be the sleeping pawn in Catwoman's cat and mouse game? Wait on pins and needles. You'll find out tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. I don't know. Will Toby and Greg ever be able to get back on track with talking about Steamheart? Tune in next time, five months from now. (laughs) Same Steam time, same Steam channel. (laughs) So. Will we ever get back on topic after I've derailed us? (laughs) (laughs) It's easy for our brains to get derailed in general, but like also when we're talking about this subject material, it's almost welcome to be derailed in places. Greg, a thought occurs. Mm. When was the last time we did a show where it was just you and me? That was the other part of this. It's been a very long time since it's just been you and I on microphone together and nobody else. So, uh Oh, Sarah's also here. Say well, hi, Sarah's Sarah. also here. Hello. Yep. <laughs> Sarah Sarah the unofficial guest who can only hear half of whatever we're talking about. So, it's not oh, quite well, the it's, same. Uh, it's enough to make sense. But yes, it 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 has been a very long time and I've missed you, Mr. Skills Yungus. Ah. Oh. 
I missed you too, ominous voice. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> start, start. The first few moments of this chapter are a dark insight into the experience of death and near death. A lot of the time, we like to assume that certain kinds of death are instantaneous. There is a sharp shock and then nothing. Media in general encourages this idea, and Hrau also thought that it would be so. But the words of this chapter do not make it easy for us or her. It could have been a long, painful death for her if Seth had not intervened. Indeed, we do not know how much time has passed, as we'll get into in a moment, and the mere experience of being brought back from death's mouth is a fresh kind of trauma for her. It leads one to wonder how close to death she was, and if the reason the ritual was as painful as it was is because of denying death, because it's how Yagana's magic works, or merely that, like Wolverine's healing factor, the healing is as painful as the wounding. Well, it occurs to me is uh, Seth asking Yagana about the specific details of the ritual and saying, well, it's hurt, and Yagana says, well, it's optional, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> the ritual and the bargaining that precedes all of this happening, it happens without Hrau being able to actually voice a thought or an objection, which we know she would want to do because the narration acknowledges this. The sequence as described makes me think of, of all things, the sequence in The Little Mermaid where Ariel makes her deal with Ursula. No, I do not want to hear Yagana's cover of Poor Unfortunate Souls. Thank you very much. <laughs> the ethereal quality of something reaching into our protagonist and the change it casts over her as we get a feeling of descent mixed with ascension into the next stage of the protagonist's lives and their narratives is probably what creates the connection for me. The difference, again, is that Ariel signed that deal herself, and Frau gets no say. Her only decision in all of this has been protecting her friends by fighting against Seth and the Wendigos, and then casting her infected self off the cliff. It is a different thing to her past trauma with the Lions of Albion, who took her agency away from her in the specific ways that are difficult to broadly apply to all situations where someone's ability to choose is taken away from them. But it is nevertheless another moment in Frau's life where, like Abigail, a significant moment that will chart the rest of her trajectory is the result of other people's choices that disregard her own. Yeah, we're going to discuss that more in a little bit in terms of affecting someone's agency. Seth would argue, I think, that an earlier thing that Harau said is the very permission that she is not able to voice in this moment. But we know that it's more complicated than that, specifically because she is delirious from pain and hallucinating, which, again, we'll speak about in a moment. But, Remember, kids, a yes when the person has just dropped off a cliff and is delirious from all those chemicals does not mean consent. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
it's also complicated for us because we don't want Rao to die. So mm. someone we associate as an enemy is saving Rao. And it's a very painful experience. And we don't know what it's, else it's going to lead to down the road in terms of the people involved, Yagana included. Um, right. Look at the like the net result of all of this. Hrau is back, mm. and a major antagonist who is the cause of a lot of the bad stuff going on is quite severely weakened mm. at, through the result of this. Just if you were to take it in purely practical terms, that's a pretty good net win for mm. the sides of the heroes in these books. But we don't feel like the whole situation is entirely good. Yeah, it, we feel uneasy about it, and that's rather remarkable when you take a step back. I don't mind complexity. I appreciate complexity. And get out of town, Greg. We appreciate <laughs> complexity. Yes, exactly. At the same time, as our introduction alluded to, this is a major flashback in terms of what's going on in Green Hollow right now. Hrow suddenly appearing. Um, and uh, changing the combat landscape a little bit. Now we have the full context for, yes, Hrau is back, and she's on the side of the heroes and not turned into a, a monster that they can't necessarily trust or anything like that. Yeah, there's actually a similar moment of like that, but going into the inverse in the mm. Merlin show, the show that looks at a young Merlin mm. and retells the... King Arthur legend, and it's sort of intended for young audiences, but like sort of uh, young teenage audiences, I would say. It was quite popular. It's a BBC series, and it was airing around the time of the Russell T. Davis, the first time uh, Doctor Who run around sort of 2008, 2010, that kind of time. But there's a period at one point, and spoilers for this, but Lancelot at one point commits a noble sacrifice, and then later comes back, but because he's been brought back to life by Morgana, it's for ill-intentioned purposes, and it's like, oh, yay, Lancelot's back, but oh no, everything's going to be so much worse now because of what he's about to do. In this case, you would fear that Rao coming back and you know being brought back by Seth established bad guy and Yagana, new bad guy and holy fuck, what are they about? It would be easy to see a version of that where Frau is now suddenly like one of the sort of mind-controlled villains and there would be a whole arc to try to bring her back or something like that. I've heard about the Merlin TV show. I've only seen a little bit of it. So I find, my, I find myself very curious about it. About the only modern interpretation I've seen of Arthurian stuff, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but this was a television miniseries that came out in... This was 1998. Well, I was watching so much Arthurian television when I was four years old, Greg. <laughs> I don't, you might have seen it after the fact, maybe, but it was <laughs> American, so maybe not. It had Sam Neill as Merlin. And Sam Neill, he yeah. of Jurassic Park. He uh, of Jurassic Park and of Event Horizon, yes. That is 
weird to think of him as Merlin, but I would be yeah. very curious to see how that would play. Yeah. But it, it, it had a whole bunch of other big names like uh, Rutger Hauer and mm. Helena Bonham Carter played Morgan Le Fay. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, what was this show called? It was literally just called Merlin. It was a miniseries. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Are you saying there was an American TV series that came out before the Brits stole the idea and made their own? <laughs> As a miniseries? Sometime, I guess. Yeah. As a miniseries... I don't remember liking it all that much. It kind of depicted um, Uther Pendragon as kind of an asshole, which he yeah. may well have been. Yeah, the BBC Ur series definitely, like, there's a lot of times where Uther is an asshole, but they do a okay. remarkable job of establishing him as that right at the start and then spending a lot of the runtime making him a surprisingly complex villain. Not, mm -hmm. not even villain, but just presence and character in the show. And and they play with a lot of the pieces of it. It is definitely a sort of, like, you could call it the YA-ification of mm -hmm. the Arthurian mythos. But I actually think that it contains a lot of the stuff there and still works, I think, as a story in its own right and something that plays with the pieces of a already quite eclectic set of mythology anyway. Let's say the conversation for another day of whether Lancelot was someone that we should say, oh, he was the noblest of knights, or, mm. oh, kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a storytelling from a different era, and it doesn't always translate very well no, 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 no. in a modern Greg. context. Greg, it's a storytelling from different eras, plural, because mm, different mm. people did different treatments, to, and depending on the culture of the time, it was either like, ah, this element of his uh, backstory is this romantic ideal and then later people go oh man what a piece of shit and <laughs> yeah so this is what happens with mythology like everyone's like okay but what's like the canon version none of it it's all <laughs> just us like iterating on it and kind of adding to it at this point the sam neil version and the bbc version are technically part of it because yeah. we're just adding to it why does this version get to be more official than this one less <laughs> I actually remember Red specifically talking about all of the different eras and all of the different iterations of mm. uh, King Arthur and all of that. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, of, of course, because the, in this case, the miniseries is called Merlin and King Arthur, that it does things uh. like... Merlin is the one that ends up bringing back Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake. And that's one of the few moments from the series where I remember it was like, well, okay, so that entire sequence of events was a complete fuck up. And Sam Neill's like, okay, lady, take this fucking sword back. And he like throws it into the water. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeets that sword. As it turns out, the BBC Merlin show does much the same where both Merlins take possession of Excalibur after Arthur has died, and throw the sword into the lake, to be grabbed from the air by Nimue. It's just that Sam Neill's Merlin is angry and upset by the whole thing, while the BBC's Merlin is just very sad and somber, completing the act to rising orchestral music. Actually, this is a film I recommend to you, and it's also mm. a film that I recommend to you, and because this is an audio thing, uh, I was just pointing at my wife there, the Kid Who Would Be King. I did finally watch that. I did not enjoy it as much as Alex did, primarily because I have, as you know, an issue with watching anything involving kid protagonists. 
Uh-huh. But I did think I, I did enjoy it. And of course yeah. I enjoyed the reveal of Patrick Stewart as Mer- as a very aged Merlin. Yeah, that was I, I forgot that that happened. <laughs> but yeah, I'll be I'll definitely be showing that to Sarah. I think she'll dig that. What were we talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> right. We got off topic again. So you brought up Merlin in relation to uh Steamheart. Uh, yeah, and anyway, we were talking about Frau and her return and how we're not sure how to feel about it. Right, right, right. That's what we were on. But That whole sequence might be lifted out and just be a good after credits. Yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the conversation. I, I, hey, Greg, I enjoyed it. Why do you think it went on as long as it did? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I decided to just leave that bit in, obviously, since I already have a lot of outtakes to add to part two of our conversation. So let's just roll back on topic. The answer, of course, is that this chapter finally gives us the big reveal. And so therefore we can see Prow's return as heroic, although not necessarily plot resolving, which we'll get to at the end. Getting back to some of the early topics, hallucinations and meetings with the divine overlap, as we can see that the vision of Dark Panther is very likely Seth himself. Indeed, the conversation that Rao has with the Fire Lion could also have been Seth potentially speaking to her. We don't know. Mm. Um, it could also have been something inside her. Like, to the extent that Rao sees a dark shape and identifies that shape as Dark Panther and Seth's deep voice as being Dark Panther's voice, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But the fire lion coming to Hrau, especially given some of the earlier sequences where Hrau was sick and she was approached by elements of the divine of her world, we don't know if this is something genuinely divine or something that comes from within her because she needs comforting and she therefore has returned to the mythology of her world in this place far from where she came from. Mm. We Sorry. will likely never know whether the divine is a real thing, either in Centrum or in Rama. Mm. And Alex prefers it that way. Multiple readings could be valid or all of them could be valid in some way. The significant thing, the important thing is Rao's experience and not any essential truth. When she mentions that she feels estranged from the father of passing, that could likely just be the traumatic experience speaking, and therefore something that is in her own head. I mean, this is what the presence of the deities that we were introduced to in uh, Tiger's Eye accomplishes in this book. The deities are actually both more present in Steamheart than they were in the events of Tiger's Eye. And yet they're also steeped in this sense that they're more distant and unreachable than ever, just as Rama is to Frau. Frau is a stranger in a strange land, and after leaving these deities to her past for so long out of grief and anger at what happened to her daughter, her connection to them has rekindled at a time when she needs to keep herself afloat and hold on to a part of her that feels so deeply baked into her, so present in her life from as long as she can remember, that no matter how far she goes, it will always be 
the the memory of them at the very least will be within her and that means by extension that as far as she goes she is still herself as well Mm. the deities don't need to be real or in her head or one thing or the other for that to be significant to how she keeps her bearings in this environment and unfamiliar territory by the memory the memory and the feeling of these deities being part of her and that at this moment when she believes that she is about to die that is the return to self that mm, is mm. taking place here yeah i like that uh turn of phrase return to self i think we also mentioned um in a long long ago previous episode of the idea that Rao is sort of carrying a bubble of Rama with her. And because mm-hmm. Miguel has been so much a part of that world that it's a it's a bubble he moves in and out of, you know, as he is with Rao as his mother, tending to frame things more in the way that she frames them rather than in the world that he came from and everything like that. I don't remember if this came up in some of those previous episode so i'm going to bring it back right now did you ever read the book by neil gaiman american gods yes yes i did okay Mm. so that's that that makes me think a little bit about how that book framed the idea of the gods and the fact that the act of going from the place of their birth and coming to a different continent Mm. results in them bringing their gods with them but it's like a separate aspect of the god. Like there is an avatar of Odin and other gods that still exists on the Norse-claimed continents and everything like that. And the Wednesday that is one of the central moving forces of American gods is a different version of Odin. That intriguing idea of like, if we carry our beliefs with us, if we carry our stories with us, and if our stories manifest as the god's and heroes that we believe in, then it's easy to believe that there could, in fact, be a version of the Fire Lion here in Centrum because Hrau brought it with her. One could argue that an outsider god would only be able to stay here if the stories of Rama and the Seven were shared with others. But lest we forget, the stories of Rama have been shared already with Jeremy Pines the researcher, and Raven the journalist. That's foreshadowing for later. Mm. But I also believe that you're right in terms of the events of Tiger's Eye brought her to peace with her strained relationship with the Seven, and now here in this new world, drawing back on that old connection for grounding is important to her. Exactly, yeah, because when we have one of many flashback chapters in Tiger's <laughs> Eye where uh, Haka is awkwardly saying, like, you want to come to Cat Church today? <laughs> uh, like, and Shifraya says, not particularly, no. That's very much an explicit moment of her at least stating that she's severing her mm-hmm. connection, but I think it's, as we see here, it feels more like in retrospect that was her just setting them down setting the thread between herself and them down and just focusing on what's here and now that it is 
like the it is today i need to get meat more meat more fill the pantry more stuff (laughs) (laughs) it is fascinating that like i say coming back to my original point that we are actually feeling those deities a bit more in this because Mm. there is some sort of artistic rendering of them within the text in that we are hearing their voice in the audio dramas version but hearing the words in the book and as we've said in previous interviews i think in the panthesol interviews because our introduction to rama was also our introduction to frau at times it feels like they are one and the same that Mm, mm. frau is rama rama is frau so that's why i feel like the connection to the deities of that world is that connection to herself that grounding Mm. and it's not until panthesol where we feel like the lens of rama that we're examining expands and we Mm. get to see the wealth of people that this world is also their home to with the stories that exist there. But as far as Steamheart, that is what the purpose feels like it serves here, is that as much as this is Frau jumping into the books of Centrum rather than Centrum coming to Rama, it feels like she's brought Rama with her. There may be some people out there that have lost track on why we refer to the world of Let Them Go and Secret Rooms and Arlington as Centrum, because we haven't gotten to the book that establishes that name yet. If you're following along with us in our reading order, only two worlds have been given names. Rama, the world of the cats, and Saitash, the plant world that gave us Wendigo. When we get to The Princess Thieves, you'll finally understand where the name Centrum comes from, as well as learn of some other named alternative planes of existence. But in short, the name is based around the idea that Centrum is a hub world, a focal point that all the other worlds are connected to. And while part of that is because this is where Charlotte's portal opening powers went wrong, there could also be metaphysical importance. That Centrum is a connection point to many others for cosmic reasons, not unlike elements from everything everywhere all at once. Discussing that gets a little too navel-gazy, however, as the reasons are only important if either the narrator or the audience give them importance. So let's get back to more concrete conversation. Oddly enough, the thing that comes to mind, which is amusing considering we were recently talking about the company of wolves and all that sort of thing, was the idea of that final scene at the end of the labyrinth where... Mm. As if Hoggle and all of the creatures of the labyrinth were saying to Rao, Should you need us? Yes. Should you need us? For any reason at all. Now I'm just imagining the fire lion as a giant muppet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, weren't we talking about at one point? It's like, okay, if we were going to muppetize something in New Century, who would be the one human character? And I think in this case it would be Miguel. So even even Prow <laughs> would be a Muppet, but she would be like one of those Muppets, like, basically someone in a Scott suit. a human suit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Much like Sweetums. I definitely think that if there was going to be two new century books that would be receive the Muppets treatment, it would be the two thieves books, the Princess mm. Thieves and the Christmas Thieves. Oh, yeah. Because okay. if you can never beat the Muppets, dear boy, you may as well join them. <laughs> 
And then this part gets cut out because it's spoilery for future books. But if you want to hear another ridiculous side tangent, there will be an opportunity later. At one point, you you made reference to the way Prow and now Miguel refer to time. Mm -hmm. And multiple times over the course of this chapter, Prow uses those words. It is yesterday because we are like, this is very literally a flashback, and Prow is telling us in so many words that it is a flashback until we get to the final moment at the end of this chapter where the timeline sinks back up again, and we, we move back into where Prow and Miguel are together inside the Chaos of Green Hollow and everything like that. I bring this up because... Her using those emblematic words serves multiple purposes here. Thinking about it, a lot of time and events have passed since the waterfall. Mm. But also, this chapter will eventually bring us back to the today of the previous chapter. As I was just saying, this is a flashback that's carrying a lot of weight on its shoulders. And at the same time, there is additional weight on top of that. During the first moments of this chapter, we get two critical pieces of narration. The part where Hrau says that time feels meaningless because she is overcome by the pain, pain that she cannot heal from alone. And then when the fire lion speaks to her about it being her last day and her first. And there is something essential in both the way Hrau perceives time and the way a story perceives time. A story will often jump around in space and time in order to reveal parts of the plot or parts of our characters that it makes sense to add in at a different time. Obviously, your mileage may vary on this idea. James Batchelor, who we interviewed for Panther Soul, is also a writer, and has mentioned that he doesn't like using the flashback in his writing. That's his choice. Different writers have different styles. And Alex loves having nonlinear storytelling in his toolbox. But a flashback also needs to be used well, as it can be an unwieldy tool. In our opinion, Alex is pretty good at it. Not every audience is going to like it regardless, but at the very least, Alex is good at having those nonlinear moments be thematically resonant to the kinds of stories he wants to tell. Every story has not simply a beginning and an end but often multiple subsets of beginnings and ends throughout. Each chapter or act or character arc has its own beginning and end right along with the plot. And sometimes these beginnings and ends are diegetic, literal, like seeing both Annie's early days and eventually her death. In this case, we see Hrau crossing a different threshold than the one at the end of Tiger's Eye. The end of who she was and the beginning of being something new. And yet it is all still her and takes place in the ever-present now of media, where yesterday and today flow smoothly together to shape the story and give us the full context for what has transpired. As I was writing this and thinking about it, it seemed to me like this chapter contains a microcosm, where the plot and the meta of the story become one, using this mechanism of trauma 
and healing from said trauma. Mm. The key words, as you identified for this whole experience, is what the Fire Lion says, that it is both her last day and her first. It is a rebirth, but one that can only come from the death of, well, perhaps not who she was, but what she was. Because, as you say, we are confident from the narration and the cohesiveness of the tone, personality, and perspective of it all, the fact that it's all unified within one chapter, mm-hmm. that Crow is still very much her. She has a continuity of perspective from before the ritual and after the ritual, and although she loses consciousness and wakes up, it it's not like she wakes up with amnesia or something mm-hmm. like that. Right. She wakes up with a coherent memory of like, ah, like what the fuck was that? And mm-hmm. so we feel that this is her. Her consciousness remains. But the experience makes it apparent that she has become something that neither she nor us, the audience, can really identify. Like Seth, we can identify and set down aspects of what she is, such as she still has the form of her old body, like she's still a big tiger, her eyes have flecks of orange, she does not carry the Wendigo infection in a way that can be transferred to others, she has a portion of Seth's power, and her life as it now exists is tinged with the uneasiness of having brushed up against Yagana. There's a lot there for us to grasp, and from a non-visual medium, we have a pretty good idea of what's her character build now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> And there's a lot for us to identify and to take on board that Hrau is emphatically different with the capital D. Whether this was a death, a form of healing achieved through arcane methods, or a transformation, all three of those processes are associated frequently with pain. As the body mends itself, it can feel like it burns, that it itches. You feel your own body knitting back together. That can be a painful process. Uh, And of course, with death, that the association of the connotation is obvious, but also transformation has that same sort of association that healing does, that your body is going through something that is reworking itself. So the pain that we see come into this is very much something that speaks to all three of those, because in many ways, all three of them are happening. Frau is healing, Frau is dying, Frau is transforming. Death is, as people often say, a transformation. Mm. And that pain comes through in the recounting of the experience. It makes us a moment that after the triumph of her return brings us back down to earth with the reality of what had to be endured for this to be achieved. Two things came to mind as I was uh, listening to you talk just now. The first of which is that when we made reference to the waterfall scene, I'm sure Mm -hmm. that we made reference to the sacrifice of Gandalf in Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, we did. At the time, it makes me like, okay, so this was an important touch point in a piece of media that should be familiar to people. But the thing is, is that most people also know that Gandalf comes back. 
Mm-hmm. So that was us tipping our hat a little bit, wasn't it? It was us tipping our hat a little bit, but the book also kind of follows us along that path because mm-hmm. all this stuff that we've been talking about, you could associate what Harau experiences as being somewhat similar to Gandalf fighting the Balrog as he fell and being near death at the end, but triumphant, and then being brought back through whatever means turned him into Gandalf the White. In, in a certain Hrow way... the purple. That's what <laughs> they call me. I am Hrow the orange-eyed. <laughs> I return to you now at the turn of the tide. Oh, fuck all these people with guns. I return to you now to fuck up some bigots. <laughs> that is uh, something that uh, Maureen mentioned in passing when I mentioned we were going to be recording on Hrow today. It's just like... Ah, yes, I'm here to fuck some shit up. You can when, quote me on that. When Maureen isn't in the room and in the book, everyone should be asking, where's Maureen? <laughs> <laughs> we need more of Maureen. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she would agree. And you, I expect. Um... <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. The other thing that comes to mind, there can be a disconnect. We experience part of this chapter through what Rao is experiencing at the time. And you mentioned at one point, when she wakes up, she knows who she is. There is no loss of memory. Mm. But I do, in fact, wonder how much of the events that we saw through her eyes she remembers after the fact. Mm. And the natural inclination is that she probably remembers all of it, especially since there were probably things that she missed along the way so that she knows as much as we, the audience, do. Well, she recognizes Yagana when Yagana appears, and I think that that's probably all you need to know of the experience, and also Mm -hmm. kind of all that we can know. There is a separate reason to believe that Hrau does remember all these events, even through the pain and hallucination. But people that have read the book know we can't talk about that just yet. No, it's just a random thought that crossed my mind. I'm not sure that the answer to it matters, but it's sort of connected to this whole thing of who you are is your memories. And so therefore, what she remembers or doesn't is important to her and her arc as it is to the story being related to us, the audience. Mm. Moving on, Mm -hmm. this chapter introduces to us a new character... That... A favorite of Greg's. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it's spoiling a little bit, but it, she's going to be making many future appearances. <laughs> Yagana. She is as mysterious as Seth himself, and we can only guess at her origins. Also, mm. like Seth, her goals are even more opaque, as her primary role seems to be to make deals much like the traditional devil or the most direct mythological connection, the Slavic Baba Yaga. In my own mind, visually, particularly as Alex describes her in this chapter, the character that most comes to mind is Mommy Fortuna from The Last Unicorn. Mommy Fortuna has power and is able to gain power over creatures more ancient than her, I feel like Yagana is probably, potentially at least, pound for pound, more powerful than Seth, 
we don't know that for certain, but she still has that crone-like quality and the ability to turn the deep magic of the unicorn and in that particular movie and story, the, uh, the harpy against them in order to contain them for some time. Mm. Um, but in terms of like what she says and how she talks in this incarnation for her, Mommy Fortuna is a good touchstone there. The harpy and me, we are not for you. Who are you for then? Do you really think those fools knew you without any help from me? <laughs> no, I had to give you a horn they could see. <laughs> These days it takes a cheap carnival trick to make folk recognize a real unicorn. But the Red Bull will know you when he sees you, so you are safer here. You should thank me for protecting you. Yeah, and that's certainly true. And the Baba Yaga is definitely the primary source of inspiration for Yagana's character. And by that, I mean in that sort of academic way where you have like primary, secondary, and tertiary mm. sources that Baba Yaga is kind of like going back as far as you could with that. Mm -hmm. But in this analogy, perhaps the secondary source that I think holds a lot of influence on Yagana is a common name so let's put a penny in the jar for Alex's list of artistic inspirations Guillermo del Toro specifically the angel of death in Hellboy 2 the golden army mm, that's an interesting callback right there I was not expecting that put the stick away Alex Toby will explain in detail the comparison that he's drawing the Angel of Death in uh, I always at the time like I think when I first watched it I assumed that the Angel of Death was a female entity mm -hmm. I think just something about the presentation and the role in the story felt like the Angel of Death was this knowledgeable witch crone character mm. you actually provided an image and I will put this image up in the mm. show notes there is definitely a crone aspect to it but with everything else that's going on, with the many-eyed wings, which, mm. of course, makes us think of uh, the typical association. Being also afraid. Yes, exactly, <laughs> that right there. But also the sort of crown that they're wearing that mm. conceals half the face and therefore also sort of conceals gender. It makes me think specifically of an artistic depiction I saw once of Ereshkigal, the goddess of the dead from Sumerian myth and the mm. the opposite of uh, Inanna. Mm. I saw an artistic depiction of Ereshkigal once that bore some similarity to this. And so therefore, I can definitely see why you would think that whoever it was was being mm. played by a female actor. But as you revealed... The, the Angel of Death is not played by a female actor. It is played by the impeccable performance artist Doug Jones, the yeah. person who plays Abe Sapien, the creature in The Shape of Water, just... Very sexy creature. Very, very sexy, absolutely. Just He's, ve he's very good with his hands. Uh, <laughs> and I mean that because he is able to convey such depth of soul in each of his characters and roles mm -hmm. through the way he utilizes his hands, whether it be the tenderness of characters like Abe or the terrifying quality of the 
God, what's the name of the one that has the eyes and the hands and uh oh i know the one you're talking about and i've actually i i need to see pan's labyrinth um yes you do yes you do yes you do (laughs) like one of the major guillermo del toro's that i have not seen yet you were talking about the pale man the pale man that's it in the case of the angel of death the way that they move their hands it feels as if it is this subtle magician that can just draw things from nowhere with a commanding authority that the depth of power is you are just seeing the surface of which it's a character that leaves a powerful impression Uh, the angel of death assists the heroes but not without a portentous assertion of the consequences that the angel of death's help will have on not only them but the world at large And while they demonstrate considerable power, like I say, they're able to pull the blade that injured Hellboy without a second thought that as soon as Liz agrees to the deal, the angel reveals the blade saying like, Make the choice, the world, or him. The time will come, and you, my dear, Suffer more than anyone. I'll deal with it. Now save him. It is done. It is instantaneous, and it's not a matter of can this person do it, it's will they. That's Mm -hmm. the sort of character that the Angel of Death is in Hellboy. I'm describing them in this much detail because I think it speaks to how we got to a character like Yagana with this being, I have no doubt, a major source of influence on Yagana. All of that is who Yagana is, this entity of great power who can tap the clock hands of the universe into the place that she chooses for her purposes, but never without something being given up. And it is often something that you could conceivably do without, but will nevertheless leave a profound absence in the life of the person making the deal. Yagana, however, is more of a person than the Angel of Death in Hellboy 2, and I don't mean that Yagana shows more humanity, or whatever her species is and the corresponding version of that is. She is, in fact, someone who shows the opposite of that in her sly cruelty. Because there is so little of her in this chapter, like we Mm -hmm. get to know her more later on. It's interesting that you pick up on a role specifically played by Doug Jones. As you were saying a moment ago, he has a physicality to his acting which is very pronounced, which often has to be since he plays roles where he is heavily made up and most of him is concealed underneath all of that makeup. Igana's hands play a big role in characterizing her in this chapter. And you Mm, mentioned that you mentioned that Doug Jones is very good specifically with handwork. With yes. what he does in playing the Pale Man, uh, with what he does in places in The Shape of Water, but also I tend to associate Abe Sapien specifically with those 
hands spanning out as he uses his abilities and everything. Yes, and and the and the hand flourishes that you were just doing a moment ago. So that's an mm. intriguing pull right there in terms mm. of the connection. There's a dimensionality and a texture to the way that Doug Jones characters will move their hands. It mm -hmm. sells you on them. And I think that's much the same with Yagano and how I think her skin is described as like paper or something mm -hmm. like that, it, which has this dry, almost fragile bone white. But while it's fragile, it's also cutting. It feels like something that can tear you to shreds. That's the feeling I get. To shreds, you say? I do. <laughs> now, something that I had forgotten going into this chapter is how little of Yagana is revealed in Steamheart. It is the first part of New Century that has her as a character in it, but like it's this one chapter, and even in this chapter, she is only a small part of it. So there is a lot of things that you and I cannot talk about right now, stuff that mm -hmm. we have gotten into in some of the interviews we did with Alex and some of the interviews we've done with Uncivil Outlaw and other later books. But mm. we will talk a little bit about what this chapter reveals. First, this idea that Yagana is a dark force. She hides mm. in shadows. Her magic feels invasive. And while her ugliness is not a sign of malevolence in and of itself, as you were alluding to a moment ago, the way she presents herself does not engender trust or positive feelings. <laughs> Just imagine Yagana's voice saying, if you can't trust this face, who can you trust? What is that from? Is that uh, the Princess and the Frog? I, it feels like one of those sort of archetypal lines ah, okay, uh, for a sort of a shuckster or someone like that. <laughs> for a second there, it just made me think of, and I forget the name of the actual character, but the Baron Somni motherfucker from that uh, Disney movie. <laughs> that would be Dr. Facilier, as voiced by the incomparable Keith David. Shake my hand. Come on, boys. Won't you shake a poor sinner's hand? Yeah. Are you ready? Are you ready? Transformation Central. Transformation Central. Transformation Central. Transmogrification Central. Can you feel it? You're changing, you're changing, you're changing. All right. I hope you're satisfied. But if you ain't, don't blame me. You can blame my friends on the other side. You got what does in fact have friends on the other side. Oh dear, yes. <laughs> um, and dovetailing off from that, it therefore does not feel like a good thing to have her attention. And her mm -hmm. attention is definitely on her out. Don't look back and don't run. You must never run from anything immortal. It attracts their attention. One wonders if she affected Rao's ability to leave, not for Seth's sake, but because she wanted time to further observe the tiger. Like 
when Hral was wandering in the nearby forest, like there was maybe an enchantment placed on it that made it even more difficult to navigate. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I like that. And honestly, I can see that being the case. And it works because what we have in the text provides more than enough reason why Hral would like struggle because mm -hmm. this is an entirely unknown location the amount of time it would take to reorient herself and then get back to where she was before would take she probably can do it but she weighs it up in her head it would take me this long to do so and seth is asking me to stay a day mm -hmm. fine i'll do this because between the two this one will actually get me where i want to be faster mm. but I think that there is something about where the house is that might make this like mm. now you're in Morgana's backyard, not Morgana, Yogana. Oh, wow. I uh, just suddenly realized that that might be an influence <laughs> on the naming convention of this. Mm. That, that wasn't a fuck up. That was a deliberate, insightful observation. Shut up. <laughs> Yagana is the one who always feels as if she has an unseen and unspoken motive that she is working towards, and other people are often the means by which she will achieve what she is heading to. But what's even more concerning is that this doesn't result in her not really considering other people as people. She is quite keen-eyed in taking the various individuals she casts her eyes towards in and deconstructing them. Mm. And that is so much worse because it feels as if she is rarely going to offer a deal that she hasn't tailor-made so that it will be sure to be accepted by the person she's proposing it to. Like, it feels as if whenever she's given you a deal, it's something where it's like she already knows that your answer is going to be yes. It's an excellent way of putting it in terms of like, it's a trope in writing that often the bad guy will make an offer to the good guy, join me, set down your burden and come and rule by my side. And there's a lot of cases where it's like, okay, there's no connection at all here. Why in the world do you think that the good guy would abandon their ideals in order to join the bad person? In the case of, like, one of the quintessential versions of that, Darth Vader versus Luke, this is the person that Luke was seeking to revenge himself for, finding out that Darth Vader is his father, and perhaps wanting to protect his sister, wanting to protect what is left of his father, that temptation perhaps feels a little bit more real, mm. but it's still easier for Luke to say no to his father, to the Emperor, than it is for someone to deny a deal presented by Yagana. Mm. Yeah, Yagana will offer you something that feels like no one else is going to be able to offer you what she can. And no one could do it as immediately as Yugana could. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's right there. And if you're mm -hmm. so determined, and more often than not, the characters of New Century, whether they be antagonists like Seth or protagonists, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, these are all characters who are more than willing to make 
sacrifices in order to do something that they think will be of help to be in the grander picture. It's all about the greater good. The greater good. Yeah. yeah, the greater good. They're all Spider-Man. They're all people who <laughs> will take the responsibility, and that means let's do the sacrifice, which means it's oh so easy for Yagana to say, yeah, you will have to suffer for taking this. It's never this other person will suffer if you do it. I mean, it may do further down the line, Mm. but it's like right now, it's like, oh, it's only going to be you and it's going to be terrible, but it's only you. Mm -hmm. And I think you can handle that. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, okay. Have you had a chance to play the uh, Midnight Suns video game? Because I know you were interested in that at one point. Uh, I'm going to quote the phrase that I inadvertently started on the Discord and say Tatmajah, which is there are too many games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mention this because in the DLC for Midnight mm-hmm. Suns... Which I want to play, that sounds cool. The DLC is not necessarily as good as the main game, but there are definitely elements going on there. There is a moment that sort of highlights a specific story beat in the comics for Spider-Man. Throughout the first act, Venom has been turned to fight the heroes by the primary antagonist, Lilith, as a mini-boss. But if you buy the DLC, you can later recruit him to the heroic side. That subplot, however requires Peter making a deal with Mephisto to free him from the Elder Goddess's influence. Wow, okay. Yeah, exactly. And then one more day's venom? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is is that what Spider-Man gives up is less obvious, but Mephisto is very obviously playing his own game there, and it's meant specifically to be a callback to that infamous storyline where he one more days away his fucking marriage, which everyone agrees is a horrible fucking story, even if elements of it are, as you say, the kind of thing that Peter would do is to suffer himself in order to protect others. But Insert image of everyone disliked that. <laughs> yes, exactly. In this particular case, I think it works better in terms of, yes, absolutely, I will accept the suffering on myself in order to protect someone else that you were just talking about a moment ago. The way it's framed in the video game, I think. Yeah, okay. That's good to know. Anyway, uh, back to Yagana. Yes, back to Yagana. She appears to have abilities far beyond any that we've seen so far. Mm. It's not too much of a spoiler to say that once we cover Princess Thieves, we might see more magic like hers. Like, at this point, we've only got the shamanic magics of Rama and the orb magics that we've seen so far in Centrum. There are other kinds of magic out there, and they have slightly different rules than the ones that we have come to know. So, Mm -hmm. again, until we talk about Princess Thieves, we can't have a deeper discussion about those various magics and the way they are different from each other. But... Mm -hmm. The thing that feels significant to me about Yagana is that she has access to meta magic. She can use her abilities to affect magics that are not her own. Mm. Yagana's magic uh, feels as if it breaks the rules. That's not meant as a critique on Alex not 
following his own magic system or any bullshit like that. Uh, what I mean by that is more that it speaks to Yagana always playing with the best hand. The house always wins, especially if it walks on bird legs. <laughs> Takes a drink of tea. Yes, uh, excellent turn of phrase there, absolutely. <laughs> but I think that's, again, that's all we'll say on it for the moment. We mm -hmm. need to have a greater context before we can, like, have a discussion on the magics of New Century. Yeah, by the time we get to Uncivil Outlaw, we should, because of Princess Thieves, have covered a bit more of this side of New Century. Mm -hmm. Finally, I don't, again, I don't think it's a spoiler because it's evident enough in the text of this chapter, but she seems to love extracting payment. And one almost wonders if her magic is based on it. And that's part of the reason why Seth's memory takes on a physical form to be kept in a jar, rather than, say, like some sort of visual effect implying that it's coming from Seth's mind and into her mind. No, instead, I'm just like, okay, this is a precious jewel, and I'm now going to keep it on the shelf where I get to admire it every now and then. You say that, like, uh, Seth's memory is kept in the jar makes me think that later Yagala's just gonna spread it on some toast, like some jam, <laughs> and get, like, take a bite and go, like, mmm, that's tasty anguish. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that she won't do that, but... <laughs> look, you look me in the eye and tell me that's not exactly the sort of shit she would do. <laughs> he can't, yeah. dear listeners, he's averting his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> her cruelty does not feel purposeless it's a curious and unnervingly effective way of having her be this source of cosmic sadism in new century but also not in a way that comes from the same place that more human cruelty that we see in characters like the inhabitants of green hollow or despite being a cat mohawk demonstrate mm. Hmm. It's a calculated way of hurting people and leaving them lesser than what they were by the time she's done dealing with them. Yeah. I think we're going to leave it there. Yeah. We, we need to have more of Yagana available to us to discuss before we can discuss more of Yagana. Precisely. So let's move on to Seth which we will do next time on Through the Windor. But first, expect to hear part one of Beyond the Windor Spooktacular Edition, where we invite someone new on to discuss non-New Century media. Don't worry, more New Century will be on the way, as there's another hour of Steamheart discussion on the editing table, and Toby and I will be recording on the final three chapters soon. To finish us off, one of my favorite 90s songs that I've been looking for an opportunity to share, which contains lyrics which could apply to Seth, Frau, or Yagana in places. Until next time, this is Sarah McLaughlin with Tom. Shadow